0: Welcome to Season 2 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation. As well as experts, yes, those people who have decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a 3 minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini. Founder and CEO of Shratae UK, here to challenge your understanding over the world around you and hopefully not challenge your attention span. On the hot button issues of today, It is increasingly difficult to distinguish the false from the factual, the opinion from the truth. From 5G coronavirus beliefs to the age old antisemitic tropes, it often feels like we are witnessing the rapid spread and dissemination of conspiracy theories online with very real offline consequences. Putting out these digital wildfires before they take hold is both vital and necessary especially in our social media dominated and hyper-connected world. Our final episode of this season of the Media Minded Podcast with the US Embassy in London attempts to do just that. Taking the experiences, thoughts and expertise of those who understand firsthand the dangers of misinformation, we explore the complexities of conspiratorial thinking and how you, the audience can protect yourself and your loved ones from the tempting cascade of provocative, unregulated and misleading narratives being peddled into our mainstream consciousness. We see conspiracy theories everywhere, from debates around whether the moon landing was faked to more harmful ideas suggesting Hollywood celebrities and political elites are harvesting the blood of innocent children. This phenomenon has been a point of interest for two of our guests today, social psychologist, Daniel Jolly and professor of political science, Eric Oliver. They join us today to talk about the history, causes and consequences of conspiracy theories with a focus on understanding how we can dismantle and disrupt conspiracy theories before they take hold. I'm joined now by Daniel Jolly, who is a social psychologist. Hi, Daniel.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me. How are you today? Doing good. It's currently very sunny,
0: so I'm wearing shorts. Although you can't see that. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Um, So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research?
1: So, I've been interested in the psychology of conspiracy theories for just under 10 years. When I, when I first came interested, it was always seen to be a bit of a fringe research area. Now, everyone always knew about conspiracy, so that that never changed over, over the last 10 years, but it's the scholarly interest. When me and my, my co-authors would say we, we were interested in, the, in understanding why people believe in conspiracies, it was always, oh, that's interesting. That's a bit different. Oh, what you how, how, how fringe, how different? Whereas today, it's such a different story. There's a whole blast of interest from other scholars, from policymakers, from the general public in trying to understand why so many people believe in conspiracies, why they kind of are taken over what it feels like our our world. But for us, it's been kind of a priority for, for quite some time where, you know, we've been interested in understanding, you know, what's the harm of conspiracy theorizing? And of course, how can we try and address some of the harms? And I think what has what changed in those 10 years is that the, the rhetorics have come much more noticeable. So of course, we've gone through, going through COVID-19, this has been a whole host of different conspiracy theories that we as the public have been able to see in front of our eyes in a sense of on social media, in actual behaviors in the real world. And of course, uh, our governments talking about these rhetorics, which, you know, five, six years ago was not really the case. So for me, I think that's what's changed is that suddenly my research areas come, oh, wow, that is really important from oh that's
0: a niche topic <laughs> which is always good from a from a research perspective i'm not
1: throwing that much shade i think i think it's great that there's actually you know interest in this area we've always been passionate about the the importance of conspiracy theorizing and rather understanding it and mm. thinking of ways to try and combat it so i think it's a good thing I think it's good that it's it's on it's on it's on the plate, and it seems to be you know important policy thing. Um, it's more just, I suppose, my journey in the field where uh, it did mean that when it came to COVID, I was already ready to talk about these issues and to uh, have recommendations when it comes to thinking about consequences and interventions. So it it kind of it meant that the kind of the field kind of kind of sped up quite quickly, I suppose. Mm.
0: No, definitely, and and I want to touch on this point about visibility that you mentioned, obviously, because it's. Um, as you mentioned from a, from a kind of research perspective, it's a good thing that it's kind of now on the radar um governments, the public, civil society you name it are kind of talking about us uh, talking about then this and misinformation and conspiracy theories and are kind of aware of it. Um, but do you think it's a positive or a negative thing that that conspiracy theories are now? so visible because um you know there's one side of the argument that says oh um you know we should remove we should be removing these conspiracy theories from kind of major social platforms and so forth but of course as we've seen with things like parlor or whatever that you know you remove them and the people that believe them then just go on to another social media platform and 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 kind of like hide away from from society so the problem doesn't really disappear it just becomes more hidden Um, but then on the flip side of course if it remains visible, there is a chance or a higher chance that ordinary people that may not be exposed to this kind of um, rhetoric will potentially be be brought into that fold of, of conspiratorial thinking. Um, where, where do you kind of fall on that? I think it's first staying off the bat, it's
1: difficult and it's one of those problems mm-hmm. that it's difficult to have a clear answer. So unfortunately, it's going to be a bit of on the fence for me. But it, it really highlights how these, these beliefs, this rhetoric, has been around for a very long time. Indeed, they've been around for as long as we have been around. They, you can track them all the way back through history. So some people think, oh, COVID-19 is the kind of flourishing ground. It's what's born, you know, the born of, of, of these rhetoric is the, the mother of it. Well, actually, it's not true at all. We, these have been around for a very long time which for me highlights, it's the psychology, it's the, it's the biases that we have that draw people to, the, to these rhetorics. So what, what has happened, of course, with the internet is they're more visible than they ever were before. As in, we, for example, on Twitter, we can use look at the hashtags and see the conversations and, and the theories and the discussion that is going on. Whereas previously, these beliefs would have always been talked about, but more offline, in person, mm-hmm things that we can't always overhear. We can't overhear their whispers, whereas on the online world, we can. But as you said, if you ban someone, you ban this, you ban conspiracy theories on, on, on Twitter or whatever, they just move platform. Because of course, these beliefs are not from the online world. Rather, it's just a way to communicate about these beliefs. So potentially, is it the argument that, those who are already predisposed to believe in conspiracies are the ones looking out for them. Indeed, some interesting work that if you would look into conspiracy theories online, typically you get quite a negative picture of, of these beliefs and, and the people who believe in them. So it kind of leads to the argument that actually, if you're already kind of hardwired to be susceptible to belief, you're looking out for it. You're looking out for, in a moment of crisis, trying to explain that crisis. And you, searching through different, different, different sources, find information that supports your prior beliefs. So is it the case that doesn't matter if they're on the public or in a private domain, if you're susceptible, you're always going to find them. But with that said, we do know that conspiracy beliefs are you know, very influential. That when you're exposed to, to this rhetoric, and indeed, if it's repeat exposure, this can you know change your beliefs and behaviors. So it could be said that if someone inadvertently is exposed to this rhetoric and indeed may have never thought about it before, that exposure of a period of time could potentially lead them down that rabbit hole. So it's kind of that swings around about in the sense that if we remove them from public space and we push them to you know private spaces we then don't really know what's going on. We don't really know what people are talking about. We don't really know what the issues are. So indeed, for example, an interesting paper looks into the conversations around 5G and the link with COVID-19, or rather the alleged link back in March, 2020. And they can see that um, the hashtag, I believe it was hashtag COVID Corona or something like that was, was was a trending hashtag. And, you know, Quite a lot of people tweeting were people who believed the conspiracy, but there was also people who were just taking the fun, laughing at it, and then also people who were being, who were trying to debunk it. But interesting, the paper suggested that at that particular time, there was no authoritative sources. So, you know, public health or government or whatever, it was a space that people were talking about these issues. So if potentially this stays in the public domain, potentially enables, probably health authorities, people who are influencers, people who are trusted in this field, doctors, scientists, whatever whatever the context, to also get involved and to have discussions with people who are talking about these issues. I think 5G COVID is just one example, but there are many other ways I can imagine this happening. Whereas when it's on a a private channel, it's much more difficult to have those conversations. Um, Of course, we can talk about the messenger and how that really matters later on. It depends on obviously who you trust, but, but for me, I think, it's, I think it's good to have it in this space so that we can kind of see what's going on. And importantly, we can then respond to it and have discussion about these issues rather than people just staying in their echo chambers and talking to each other and potentially kind of making themselves more extreme by staying in, 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 in the uh, shadow, shall we say.
0: With the immense exposure that conspiracy theories have received in recent years, Partially thanks to the visibility of social media platforms many people believe conspiratorial thinking has been on the rise since the advent of the internet. However, as researchers from our previous episodes and as Eric will explain, this is not necessarily the case. Throughout history conspiracy theories have flourished and taken hold of large portions of the population during periods of perceived threat lack of control and uncertainty i'm joined now by eric oliver who is a professor of political science at the university of chicago and the host of the podcast nine questions with eric oliver eric how are you i'm doing great how are you doing today yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Enjoying our uh, British summer. It's still holding off or holding on, should I say. So we're happy over it.
2: <laughs> oh, good. I hope it's cool down there for you.
0: Um, a little bit, a little bit. It's definitely yeah. not 40 degrees. That was a bit too much. That yeah. Was, yeah. Our houses are not ready for that kind of level of heat. Yeah. Um. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your research into conspiracy theories.
2: Sure. So uh, I'm a professor of political science. Um, I'm very interested in how people make sense of their worlds. And I got interested in conspiracy theories uh, way back in the 90s when I was a graduate student. I was um, walking down the street in Berkeley, California. And Berkeley has a lot of colorful people. And this one guy comes up to me and was like, hey, man, you got to check this out. And he handed me a little piece of paper that had a little detailed Tiny writing on it about a conspiracy theory involving Queen Elizabeth and the Trilateral Commission and aliens. And, you know, at first I thought, okay, this is just another crazy guy. But then, you know, as I was reading through it, I was like, okay, this guy took the time and effort to kind of think through this and disseminate it. And he is thinking about the world in a much, much different way than the way I was taught that people think about the world in my political science classes. And at the time, I was doing research on some other things, and so I said, "Okay, I'll, you know, put this on the back burner." But this guy always kind of struck me. And then a few years later, I had some room on some surveys I was conducting, and I thought, "Well, maybe I'll just ask about a few conspiracy theories." And the numbers that came back just floored me. Um, you know, I thought that conspiracy theories would be fringe, maybe two to three percent of the population at most, kind of agreeing with them. And it turns out about fifty percent of Americans agreed. With one of seven conspiracy theories, um, and when I showed this to my colleagues, they were aghast. They were like, "Oh no, you've got some sort of measurement error here. This couldn't be right." So I kept rerunning surveys on conspiracy theories and kept getting back these really huge numbers, and and that was just clearly there was something else going on in the larger public that you know we were missing as a <clears throat> as a field, um, and so this was in you know the mid two uh, thousands. And, um, so I was continued to be curious then. I was like, well, what is it that predicts whether or not somebody believes in a conspiracy theory? And it turns out the two biggest predictors of whether or not you believe in a conspiracy theory are, do you have a supernatural belief or do you have a paranormal belief? So <clears throat> if you believe in heavens, angels, devils, if you believe in ESP, <clears throat> psychic powers, uh, horoscopes these are the kinds of things that really are very strongly predictive of whether or not people subscribe to conspiracy theories. And so the question was, was what do all these things have in common? And in a lot of ways, what they all are are kind of forms of magical thinking. And what we mean by magical thinking is, magical thinking is when we make attributions to unseen forces or unobservable forces for events that are happening around us. So we can't observe ESP. We can't usually observe demons or angels. Um, and most conspiracy theories, we can't directly observe um, the various forces, nefarious forces that are at work kind of making something happen. And so the that then raised the interesting question is why are some people really drawn to magical thinking? And what is it about magical thinking that's so compelling for people? And so this is what then prompted research, which then became uh, the book I wrote a few years ago called Enchanted America, uh, with my graduate student at the time, Tom Wood. And we were delving into why people have magical beliefs. And uh, it turns out people, I think, are drawn to conspiracy theories, to magical beliefs, to supernatural beliefs, because they reflect our intuitions. They reflect the ways that we naturally go about trying to comprehend the world. And our intuitions are really defined by two key characteristics. On the one hand, they're really, really defined by our emotional states. And so typically when we're feeling uncertain or we're feeling afraid, which is a very dangerous condition for most animals, animals really want to feel certain about the world. And so when we're feeling uncertain or when we're feeling anxious, that's a very uncomfortable state for us and we want to resolve it. And so. What magical beliefs do is help us resolve that uncertainty. they they basically act as emotional palliatives. They make us feel better. And the other thing that's interesting about them is that they draw on those feelings as information sources. And I use the example of when my son was little, I went into his room one night and he was screaming about monsters in the closet. And we spent about 20 minutes kind of going back and forth and me trying to rationalize with him that says, listen, there are no monsters here. And finally, he said to me, he was like, you know, dad, if there are no monsters in the closet, then why am I afraid? And this is kind of how I think a lot of conspiracy theories operate. People draw on their own anxiety as a cue that something must be wrong and therefore then try to rationalize why they're feeling so afraid. So that's a big part of our intuitions is not only the desire to make ourselves feel better in the short run, but then to draw on the anxiety as a source of information in itself. The other thing about conspiracy theories, and this really holds for all kinds of magical thinking, is that um, they have a kind of grammar to them. Now, psychologists have long recognized now that we have these things called heuristics. And these are these shortcuts that we use to make judgments or decisions when we don't have a lot of information. And some of the heuristics that we use are things like a representative heuristic. So we think that things that look like one thing have the characteristics of the thing that they look like. And, you know, I think in in supernatural beliefs, voodoo dolls are a really good example of this. Or we think that, you know, maybe pictures of holy people or pictures of our family members have their kind of essence to them. The other thing that's a big heuristic is an anthropomorphizing heuristic. And we see this a lot in conspiracy theories. So in the United States, for example, you hear a lot of conspiracy theories that the CIA wants to do X or Y. And it's right. assuming that the CIA has like a singular intentionality to it, like it's a person. Um, and so you see these kind of anthropomorphizing heuristics in uh, a lot of kinds of magical beliefs, but I think they really show up a lot in, consp- in conspiracy theories. So if we put together both our emotional stimulus and then these heuristics, I think we can kind of get the groundwork that, okay, these are how our intuitions function. And this actually is really, I think, what's animating a lot of the attraction of conspiracy theories.
0: And that is, is fascinating. And could it be fair to say that um, a lot of this is also to do with um, potentially, you know, getting a, a quick or a simple answer to, to an otherwise kind of complex question or an, or an unknown question. I mean, the idea of you know, what happens to us when we die, for example, is is probably the most the most obvious one where you know science goes to some extent, but often that, that extent isn't enough for people. So they, they kind of want a more um, a more succinct, um, potentially nicer answer that kind of fits that that narrative or, or, or creates comfort or certainty post post something that
2: all of us are gonna go through at some point. Sure. And, and that's, you know, that's a big part of the belief is that it it does serve that emotional function. So, you know, I believe in an afterlife because death is terrifying. And if mm. I believe that I'm going to live, you know, after I die, I don't feel so scared about dying. But the funny thing about conspiracy theories on, on this um, note is that they do kind of a mixed thing. So on the one hand, they do give the adherent of the conspiracy theory, this sense of power. Okay. Ah, okay. Now I know what's going on and oftentimes it's even more alluring because it's a secret kind of power i'm mm-hmm. on the inside i actually know what's happening that most people are not recognizing therefore i'm special uh, in this way and so that really is oftentimes a very powerful you know allure of conspiracy theories but if you think about then it's funny with conspiracy theories because they at the same time that they have this allure they're also implicating something that's really scary. So it's like, um, you know, take the example of 9-11. So mm. uh, a lot of Americans believe that 9-11 was an inside job that was orchestrated by the U.S. government to kind of propel us into a war in the Middle East.
0: Right.
2: Um, so on the one hand, it's like, oh, wow, you know, 9-11 was a scary event. I, I know what's happening now. It's the government's behind it. But on the other hand, that that may sort of placate my anxiety in the short run or that uncertainty, but on the long run, oh my God, I've lived with a government that's willing to like kill and destroy their own citizens. Um, and so it actually sustains a kind of more chronic anxiety over time. It's a, it's a, it's analogous to believing in the devil and saying like, oh, okay, I do not understand why there's evil in the world because there's a devil, but oh my God, there's a devil that's causing evil in the world. Um, so it, it's somewhat of a mixed bag. And I think that's one reason why people get so addicted and hooked into conspiracy narratives is because they provide like a short term fix for their anxiety, but it's still stoking this kind of chronic long term anxiety. And so they want to go find the next clue. They need to find what the next thing that's going to happen and so forth and so on. So it, it you know, it it kind of propels them on. But what
0: do you think makes a conspiracy theory kind of catch on and have, you know, staying power or, or remaining um almost relevant for lack of a better term. Because you know, we we've seen conspiracy theories come and go and kind of COVID was was the kind of height of a bunch of different um, you know, pandemic-inspired conspiracy theories, some that kind of had a very, very short uh lifespan and others that propagated probably to this day. I mean, 5G being being probably one of them. Um but then if you look at, you know, QAnon was was a really interesting one because it's it survived for for a while and you know now you've got q believers pretty much all over the world um so is there like a, a profile or a set of almost things that 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 make conspiracy theory catch on and
2: and really kind of survive the the test of time yeah you know it's funny if if it were ethical um I would do this experiment which i thought about for a long time which is about (laughs) kind of putting out a bunch of different conspiracy theories and then to see which ones go viral um with the idea that there you know there'd be certain rules that they would have to follow or not follow and i mean that would be
0: fascinating i can see why you say highly unethical but yeah yeah, absolutely fascinating um
2: (laughs) so yeah you know i've thought about trying to test this out with an experiment um but what I've been able to gleam on this, I, I think you know it's it's important to recognize that there are you know thousands and thousands of conspiracy theories that go out there. And then there are a few that kind of latch on. Mm-hmm. And it's it's I think that a lot of it's it's like advertising, um, which is or you know, memes or anything, you know, you can try to put stuff out there and sometimes it sticks and sometimes it doesn't. And part of that has to do with circumstance. Um, mm-hmm. so is your conspiracy theory at the right place at the right time? Um I think a lot of it has to do though with, are you tapping into these heuristics? Um, And so typically what a conspiracy theory does is that it takes an event or it takes a particular fact and then reads it in a way that's then um, consistent with what I was talking about, this kind of feeling of anxiety, of needing to rationalize anxiety, or, and then drawing in some other uh, heuristic that's there. So, uh, you know, take, Um, you know, take 5g, for example, Mm -hmm. um, suddenly people see these towers going up. There's a sense of that People don't really know about the technology. So there's a lot of uncertainty around that. So there's typically a lot of anxiety around it. Plus it's, uh, you know, there are corporations that are putting up these things. And we typically think that corporations don't have our best interest at heart. Um, and so it's easy in that sense of, okay, there's a very powerful force that i don't that has no accountability to me that's doing something that seems that i really don't know very much about and that you know has these radio waves and i don't really know what radio waves do but they seem to be you know they're activating my phone but they're probably also doing something more than that and so you could you know that's been a very fertile terrain for then coming up with some sort of alternative narratives and we saw the same thing with covid uh, you know, particularly, and we, we still see it, but, you know, early on this here, we have this, you know, infectious disease that's causing all kinds of death. It causes, it makes people very, very uncertain. So immediately there are conspiracy theories, where does this disease come from? You know, we see the government, you know, flailing about and trying to have a response to this. Well, why is that? Why is the government so unsuccessful? Um, what is behind, you know, these vaccines. Um, And the other thing, you know, it's important to know about, I think why vaccines oftentimes get implicated in conspiracy theories is that vaccines hold a lot of, uh, vaccines are really counterintuitive to us. You know, the idea that I'm going to take something that's, you know, a septic pus and, you know, inject it into my body and this somehow or another will protect me. Is, is probably one of the most counterintuitive things. Like our intuition is, is we're very, very sensitive to contagion and uh, to, you know, tainted poisonous things. We've evolved to have a hypersensitivity to these types of things. So the idea of, you know, of taking something that is, you know, in a very small dose could be harmful for us and that that, that protects us really doesn't make a lot of intuitive sense for most people. And we've seen opposition to vaccines since, vac- you know, for the past couple hundred years, since mm-hmm. vaccines really started. Um, and so sure enough, when you see, um, people who rely on their intuitions a lot are typically very, very reluctant to use vaccines. Now, the way that it gets overcome is of course, when you face reality. So when you do have, you know, if we had smallpox or we have polio that is sort of rampaging across the population and it's very, very visible, um, people typically set aside their vaccine hesitancy for the most part, and you can see this in the United States, like most senior citizens, most people who are most vulnerable to COVID are vaccinated, where you've seen most of the vaccine hesitancy is amongst people who are under 65. Um, so, because it's, they can of afford you know, to have that. hesitancy, Yeah, because you can, right, right, exactly. So, you know, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, like, okay, yeah, people typically then give up their magical beliefs, but oftentimes it takes a lot, you know, and and some people don't. Um, And so that kind of, it shows really the power of intuitive thinking and the power of our intuitions and shaping our behaviors. Um, And the same thing I think then goes with, you know, the conspiracy theories, they really draw on our intuitive proclivities and they have that allure and they have that power, particularly when we have things that are uncertain and the outcomes are really unclear for us.
0: Mm-hmm. So how, how pervasive would you say is conspiratorial thinking amongst the general public? And, and what does this say about how we form
2: uh, opinions on a, on a kind of mass level or on a societal level? Um, well, I can I study mostly the United States. So I can mm-hmm. speak to what's happening in America. Of course. Um, I think the situation is somewhat different in both the UK and in Europe. Um, but you know, I like to tell when I when I'm giving talks in Europe and I'm I'm talking to people who are non-American, uh, the fact that if you go and you survey the American population, about 30% of Americans believe that we're living in end times as foretold by biblical prophecy. Right. So they think the rapture is imminent. And this has been going on, you know, as long I've been doing surveys on this now for about 15 years, and that that number has been pretty steady during that time. It's not simply just because of all the tumult of the past few years. When you say the number, you and, mean the 30 percent, that yeah, the 30 percent. Right, yeah. And so uh, Americans have a, you know, there are a large percentage of Americans who I think are underrepresented in kind of national media uh, or national culture, but who really hold some very serious magical beliefs, and this idea that. You know, for these people, everything is a potent sign of the second coming of Christ, and you know, in, in the United States, they really welcome it, and it explains a lot of like so the enthusiasm, for example, of the religious right for Israel and support of Israel because they think Israel is important in terms of this biblical prophecy. Right. Uh, so that's a little aside there. Um, so, you know, in the surveys I've done, you know, usually around fifty percent of people believe in one of the conspiracy theories that that we set forth. One of the most common ones is that uh, the idea that the Food and Drug Administration, that's the agency in the United States that regulates drugs, Mm -hmm. um, is deliberately withholding approval for natural cures for cancer because of secret pressure from the pharmaceutical industry. And typically about 40% of people believe that. Um, That's probably the most consistently the most popular one. And the reason why that's most popular it's it's a relatively unideological claim it, it people on the left subscribe to it just as well as people on the right mm-hmm. and if you think about it, you know people on the left you know are suspicious of corporations so that i was gonna say it, it kind of fits in their yeah. wheelhouse quite right quite perfectly, and people almost. on the right are suspicious of government so it fits for them as well mm-hmm. so it's kind of a you know kind of perfect uh both of the two sides or, enemies kind yeah. of collaborate yeah. Yeah. so it, yeah, yeah. yeah um and then you know it the numbers go down as you move down the, you know, and then they t- they tend to become more ideologically aligned uh, as, as you go down. Um, but even things like, you know, the idea that uh, chemtrails, you know, those, when you see a jet in the sky and it has those it's yeah. trailing those, those clouds behind it, um, you know, nine to 10% of people believe that that's a program of secret government sprain. Um, and that number is pretty consistent. Um, now, I should say, when we do surveys, I always think that you know you have to bear in mind when you do a survey and you get a number like this there's a pretty there's probably like a five percent margin of error on either side in terms of what you're capturing so if i have a conspiracy theory that is really below five percent i'm pretty suspicious that mm-hmm. you know it's it has much validity and even like say one that has nine or ten percent you know it could be that five percent of people really believe this uh but it could be more um you know th- these Surveys are noisy instruments, mm-hmm. um, but you know we've done enough of these surveys that you could say a large percentage of the American population is really, um, uses conspiracy theories as explanations on a regular basis for what's going on in politics. Um, I think this is not uncommon in a lot of other parts of the world, um, for example, in South America and many parts of Asia and the Middle East um, and Africa, um, you see these these types of conspiratorial narratives tend to be very rife. Um, and once again, I think it has a, it's a function of both having a lot of magical beliefs um, and, you know, not necessarily being inculcated in a more rationalist frame of mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, Europe is a little bit more interesting because um Europe is probably the most rationalist area of the world um in terms of its orientation. And um conspiracy theories tend to be less common there um than they would be say in the United States, even though there's a similar level of economic development. Um, but you know why do you think that is still is it
0: historic or is it
2: yeah I else? think a lot of it has to do with cultural institutions. Mm. Um, you know like I said before um it's it's I don't know if how far Europeans appreciate the extent of evangelical Christian thinking in the United States. Um I like to tell my students like the US for a long time Um, You know, has a governing class that looks like it comes from Sweden, but a populace that looks like it comes from India, uh, in terms of this, you know, kind of worldview and belief Mm -hmm. system. Um, And I think there's a big divide between people, you know, have a kind of a post enlightenment rationalist worldview who believe in science, facts, logic and deduction, um, and that, you know, kind of frames their understanding. As opposed to people who draw on their intuitions and, you know, understand the world through myth and symbol and metaphor, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of cultural institutions in the United States that reinforce that I think in Europe. Um, you don't have the same level of kind of uh, fundamentalist or evangelical uh, churches. Um, I mean, that 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 is, I mean, obviously. Um european countries are,
0: are are very different in and of themselves so i mean for example um just taking two examples of of, of the uk and italy for example i'd say that the uk is a lot more um secular in the, in their beliefs than than say italy who's who's quite um uh predominantly catholic christian for example um yeah so, so yeah. obviously there and are I, diversity but that said as you say you know evangelical christianity is just not not a thing that that um we in the uk it's just it's just not something that really a lot of people subscribe to to here in the uk so arguably we wouldn't really know much about it or, or its influences that it has on the
2: states right so the the question is is where you know what are the cultural institutions that are reinforcing an, an intuitionist way of thinking as opposed to say a more rationalist way right. of thinking um and you know i'm always struck whenever i'm i'm in the uk or in europe I'm i'm just wow you know the, the there's just so much more rationality in the way you organize society <laughs>
0: yeah to some extent i'd say to some yeah. extent um but um but no i think and and, and would you say then that there is a, a a correlation between um people that are more religious and 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 people that believe in conspiracy theories would you say oh in the united more...
2: states yeah definitely um, it's, and it's, um, it's, if you look at, I mean, a, a lot of religion itself is, is situated in what is a kind of conspiracy theory. There are these unknown forces, particularly this there's belief in Satan or the devil, right? There's this unseen, invisible, nefarious force that's out there causing, you know, tumult and chaos. Um, and so it's, uh, and because religion's really work in a kind of mythic culture and uh it draws on these ideas of metaphors and symbols and these heuristics these you know these emotions that propel the narrative Mm -hmm. um the the idea of these tropes of magical thinking of contagion you know the idea that if i touch the holy shrine i will be blessed or if i you know i i i hit the taboo thing then i need to be cleansed um These are, you know, this this type of thinking is very, you know, prevalent in religions. It reinforces the religions themselves, reinforce this type of thinking. So that makes uh, their adherence particularly susceptible then to conspiratorial ways of thinking, because it, it coincides so well with this other dominant worldview that they have.
0: What becomes clear? is that many online conspiracy theories might be doing less persuading and more reinforcing of already existing views. As we've heard from academics throughout this season, it only takes one small kernel of truth for a belief to snowball into a full-blown and disturbing fabrication. Take QAnon's Save the Children campaign, for example. I think we can all agree that underage children should be protected from exploitation, especially after a case like Jeffrey Epstein. So, when QAnon took over the Save the Children hashtag, we can see how it becomes easier for people to be manipulated into believing the conspiracy theory QAnon peddled, especially when they take advantage of pre existing cases that prey on the young and vulnerable.
1: not a switch on switch off switch it's not that you suddenly are exposed to you know content that suggests climate change is all a hoax and suddenly like right that's it i'm now this this person i've changed my whole identity Rather, it's a, it's a journey in a way that a person, you know, in a way, use the word, gets more radicalized as time goes on. And how long that journey will be is very much, I suppose, down to the individual and what they're consuming and the conversations they are having. And it could be quite quick. It could be a month. It could be it could be over six. It could be a year. It very much depends on, on the individual. But I think that's a really great point in that these beliefs will be will be different, and people believe in different conspiracies to a different amount, mm-hmm. they may have this overarching central belief that they distrust other people, they distrust those who they perceive to be powerful, which could be governments, could be, could be scientists, but also could be those who they, they perceive to be threatening, such as minority group members who they feel threatened by. So in a way, it's not that on and off switch, in, in, a, in a way, it's much more complex than that. And, you know, when we think about interventions, how we try and target someone, whether we try and target, you know, um, preemptive before they get radicalized or how we think about okay when someone's already down the rabbit hole and it's, it's it's so entrenched, it is there it's part of their identity how do you kind of deal with it
0: and and, and this trust element is really interesting to me right because um you know this, this plays a big part because it's the idea of the distrusting say you know the world health organization if you're talking about a, a, a pandemic or, or a health crisis or it's to do with elections and, and therefore it's a, it is the distrust in the process and, and 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 government in general right um but that kind of level of almost cynicism or, or nihilistic kind of like lack of trust in in institutions and in academics and and, and so on then translates to almost blind trust in say influencers or, or people on social media that really you have no reason logical reason to trust them um so it's kind of like this kind of double standard almost that all the people that um we've been told well they've gone through rigorous testing they've gone through years of study etc that's why we we as a society trust them well we're not going to trust these people but we are going to trust this random person who I've never met never seen don't know how they look like don't know if they're a real human being <laughs> I'm going to put all my trust in that person. Like, how does that think, make yeah, sense?
1: I think that's super, super interesting. And of course, when you say putting putting that trust in that random person, in a way, it's trying to have similarities. It's someone who you perceive to be similar to you. So mm. maybe you perceive you both to be very powerless. And you're in this form online or really in the pub, and you are you're both on the same side, trying to understand whatever issue you're trying to understand. And you're pointing the finger who, who at those who you perceive to be powerful. They're different to you. I, you know, they are not after my best interests where instead in this community space, you feel that this person actually is in your best interest. They are trying to protect you and your group. So I imagine that person, if they highlight they are a different group to you, a different political party, I suspect you wouldn't necessarily trust them. Whereas if you feel they are, you know, similar to you, you're gonna hold on to that. That's why I think the messenger Is really important, Mm -hmm. and how you know? Interestingly, a biomedical approach that has been supported by a powerful source is something that we people who believe in conspiracy theories don't engage with. But once that same approach. That same biomedical approach is supported by a perilous source it's then seen to be legitimate and people want to engage in it for those who believe in conspiracies so again it's all around who they perceive to be the messenger and who they perceive to be giving them that information so in a way when it comes to public health for example is it good to have a myriad of stakeholders involved so when i say stakeholders i mean community leaders influencers, people who can talk about these issues really passionately, so doctors online, for example, talking to their communities, they are likely to build trust. Also, and I I think more more generally, just thinking out loud here, I wonder if we felt more connected and and more understanding of, shall we say the government Would that change how we think about governments and conspiracy theorizing? As in often, we just think of the government. The government has done this bad thing and they've lied about COVID, they lied about climate change or whatever it is. When actually the government is a very complex beast. There's many different factors on it. There's not just one entity. So if you had a good relationship, let's say with your MP or indeed your your council or, or whatever it is, does that in itself breed trust in those institutions and other people? So when it comes to you thinking about, I don't know, you see online and you hear about the government has lied about COVID, you think, well, actually, there isn't really just the government, rather it's made up of many different parts. And does that knowledge and that understanding and that connection change how you interact with these rhetorics? As I say, it's just a think out loud thing. I have no data on that, no suggestion that it may actually work, but it's just thinking about community elements and how we know that seems to be really important. And at least when I think about conspiracies, the ones I know of, it's always this overarching thing. It's never like, actually, you know, could your MP do that? Do you trust your MP? Do you have that faith in your MP? And when you think about doctors and nurses, do you trust your doctor? And does that trust in your doctor actually help when you think about these issues? So, if you are a new parent, worrying about whether you should vaccinate your child, if you trust your doctor, well, then a conversation with them could be really productive. And when it comes to thinking about doctors in general, you may think, oh, okay, I'm not sure about that, but my doctor, yes. And that kind of helps you kind of work through the, the, the rhetorics and indeed whether you vaccinate or not.
0: Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And it, and it, You know, if we see the government as, you know, this, this kind of obscure, massive institution, it kind of fits the perfect profile of the Hollywood bad guy, right? Right. You know, very obscure, this massive organization that's just doing evil. Mm -hmm. But then, as you say, if we, first of all, understand it better. So understand the processes, understand how it works. And, you know, these things that, frankly, we should be taught in school in, um, you know, roundabout sense. um. And then had that more personal touch with, say, our our local politicians, be an MP, councillor, or, you know, the equivalent in whichever country we're talking about. Um, Then arguably that kind of mysticism of this kind of evil organisation kind of dissipates and disappears. Um, Although it may only work for those people who are
1: not in the, yet in the rabbit hole who have these entrenched right. beliefs. Maybe I'll help pre And it also makes me think about um, during, during the COVID time in 2020, 2021, the, the, no, I'm pretty sure it was the New Zealand president, prime mm. minister, used to do quite often um, Facebook lives, talking about the policies that's going through and talking to people in the comments and kind of having that discussion with the everyday person. Now I'm sure, I watched a couple of them, they appeared in my feed and I them super engaging they were super informative and it felt like you were part of the conversation and indeed we know that when you feel you have a voice this can be really empowering and you know in in science it's called procedural justice and if you have a voice in society or your workplace it can make you feel more empowered which you know could be a buffer to belief in conspiracies so i do wonder if that personal connection indeed in that context with the prime minister could that have, you know, increased trust in, in their institutions and maybe have buffered conspiracy theorising for those who maybe on, on on the fringes?
0: Going back to obviously the um, the the the, the people that have gone down that rabbit hole, is um, belief in one conspiracy predictive of others? Like, are they more likely to believe in more if they go down down to one, or is there was there no connection there?
1: So the research suggests the answer is yes. People who believe in one conspiracy are very likely to believe in others. And that is because, you know, if you have distrust in the government and you start to believe that they've covered up COVID-19, it then opens the doorway to think about, okay, well, what else have they done? If they can if they can do this, and I think they've done this, you know, what else have they covered up? How else are they trying to harm me and my group? So it's all, you know, around that central belief that you think, other people are doing bad things and are covering it up. Back to that, again that, that distrust. If the conspiracy belief breeds that distrust, it then could, you know, um, erode beliefs in other issues that we have. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely is one of those consistent findings that, that 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 we seem to have in our
0: in our field. And and, and it makes sense because you know if you're gonna if you hold the belief, for example, that, that the you know the twin towers was an inside job, you're you're it's not really that much of a stretch. If you think your government's capable of that, it's not really much of a stretch to think, oh yeah, the government definitely faked the moon landing. Do you know what I mean? Like it's... Absolutely, absolutely. I think that the absolute
1: opposite, if you have mm. trust in our institutions and you trust consensus in science and you trust mm. uh, you know, uh, the gateways that we have of knowledge, then similarly, when when the government says it was, this is what's happened, this is the official account, you would like it to go, yeah. You may think critically about it. You may okay. look at different sources, of course, but then you, ultimately you're gonna go, yes, I trust scientists. Okay. I see the consensus that, Climate change is happening. That vaccines are safe, mm-hmm. and you hold on to that because you have that trust. You have that worldview of trusting. Whereas well, I say the opposite is true yeah. for those who believe in conspiracies. It is all, you know, down to our worldviews. So when we come to sense make and try to understand a particular issue, it's kind of putting our rose-tinted glasses on, and it's mm-hmm. kind of what is our prior beliefs, what kind of meets that agenda. So of course, when we think of interventions for those who are already down the rabbit hole it's like how do we change that viewpoint how do mm-hmm. we get people to kind of take off those glasses and at least to ask questions and to evaluate the evidence rather than going the first thing i read in google because it says what i want is what i then retweet rather than stopping and thinking okay it is saying what i think and it makes you feel good but I probably should check to see what other people are saying. Is this, you know, author credible? Is it actually something that I can really kind of stand behind and believe? And potentially, you know, sort of into what critical thinking abilities, thinking through these issues in that moment and arguably being able also to regulate your emotions so that when you find yourself in this moment of sense make and you're trying your best to think critically, that you can also deal with your anxieties and your and your anger and your and your feeling of threat to be able to think through these issues. Cause we know that, that being more reflective can reduce belief in conspiracies. That has been shown by quite a few studies. But as I say, I'm, I'm certainly not naive to think that in a moment of crisis, your skills might go out the window because you feel this anxiety. So for me, I think it's trying to deal with both these things. And, you know, ideally, Young people trying to have, have skill set building around critical thinking abilities, online, online learning and whatnot, but also around emotions and how we deal with, with, with crises that you know happen. Um but at the moment there's not really that kind of push towards those skills. I think I think it'll come. I think it'll come because there's more interest in the area of misinformation, disinformation in the world. So I do think this, this will appear. But at least right now, it's kind of not necessarily there. It seems to be very teacher focused. If a teacher wants to focus on these issues, as part, for example, PSHE, which doesn't have a strict curriculum as such, there's a bit more flexibility. We usually we can find these sort of skill set building in those kind of classrooms. But of course, as I say, it all depends on the teacher and their kind of. Their, well, also the teacher, but also what's happening in the school, as in what issues are important to that, that, that community and the teacher sees to be a, a particular issue that needs to be addressed, uh, which could be a whole host of different issues. But but the, the point is, I think, I think these set building,
0: skill set building is, is an important part of our education that should come a cornerstone. Mm-hmm. No, no, definitely. I 100% I agree with you. And actually, um, it's interesting you say There's often teacher led, because when you consider then uh, those same teachers often um, don't feel equipped to then deliver this work. There is there is obviously that skills gap. And there was a, um, a bit of research done by um, James Weinberg from, from Sheffield Uni that, that found that um, less than 1% of teachers surveyed um, believe they had the, the tools necessary to deliver political and media literacy. So there's it, it kind of almost compounds itself into that, that because there isn't a set portion in the curriculum to kind of deliver this. And I think emotional resilience is super important, as you say, um, the reason that that element in the curriculum or that space in the curriculum to properly delve into this, um, but further than that, if it's then teacher led, but the teachers don't feel like they mm. have the ability to then deliver this, mm. yeah. um, you know, it then gets kind of yeah. doubly less likely for yeah. it to be um, for it to be to be done in schools. Yeah, um,
1: but of course, to play devil's advocate, it's also saying if we're, I'm saying we're saying it's important that these skill sets are taught. The curriculum has already burst in what is Mm. removed to have this in there and obviously i'm not an expert in this field in, in education but i think it's i think it's a thing that i think about as well is thinking okay well if we're really advocating for this what else changes that's why i often think pshe is a good place to start because potentially there's more room to remove things in there because it's not necessarily it's not as structurally strictly defined which is mm-hmm. the reason why when teachers do want to focus on the skill building around misinformation or conspiracy theories or just the online world it often fits in there. And just by looking online um, to see what what resources exist, that is kind of where it usually fits.
0: Well known conspiracy theories and other online cult-like groups blame governments, scientists, and many others for problems as diverse as terrorist acts, deaths of important people, or even their own lack of intimacy in their personal lives, as is the case for incels. At a glance, it feels like our digital landscape contains as much conspiracy as it does objective truth. The social groups you interact with create echo chambers, and these echo chambers are making it increasingly difficult to get through to a family member, friend, or even acquaintance. But from the Gamergate scandal, to the Great Replacement Theory, we all know it is far more dangerous to stand by in silence.
2: You know, um, and th- there is no simple uh, solution. So I-, I get this question a lot, which is when I give talks about this, people always say "Well." you know what do i do with that crazy uncle who i see over the holidays you know who has you know his that was actually going to be one of my questions but <laughs> yeah yeah and Can't you know really how, yeah how do i how do i talk to that person you know how do, how do i make sense to the other side is there how do what do we do about this mm. and um you know the i have two answers to this and i'm not super satisfied necessarily with either one but they're the best that i've been able to come up with so the first one is <clears throat> when you're talking to somebody who has a conspiracy theory, it's important to realize they're not looking for reasoned arguments against their conspiracy theory. Their their whole reasoning apparatus is in defense of the intuition that's behind the conspiracy theory. And that intuition is one of fear and anxiety for the most part. So you, you, you probably are never gonna be able to reason someone out of their conspiracy theory, but what you could possibly do is empathize with them and say, wow, okay, Huh? You really believe the government is capable of, you know, wanting to, you know, inoculate, you know, to implant chips in all the population and have millions of people die in order to have this nefarious plan? That that must be a pretty frightening worldview. Um, how do you, you know? How do you feel about that? And 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 it it goes back to like you know when my son was talking about the monsters in the closet, he didn't want me to tell him that there were no monsters in the closet. He wanted me to acknowledge his fear. Um, and I think just simply acknowledging and witnessing people's anxiety can be really comforting to them. And in some ways lessens the grip of the narrative, uh, slightly, um, and we know we all want to be heard. We all want to be witnessed. We all want to be seen. Um, and I think a lot of times when people are saying, when they're doing conspiracy theories, they're just, they're wanting that they're wanting that kind of reassurance. but that's a tall order. It requires a lot of patience. It requires a lot of time. It requires some some intimacy and connection there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, another thing that I do when I have talks or I have students who who bring up conspiracy theory, I, I just ask them very simply. I said, "Okay, you know, our our beliefs are tools for us. They're tools that we use to make sense of the world, and all of our tools have utility. So, what utility does your conspiracy theory have for you? What is it? What is it actually doing for you at the end of the day?" How is it helping you in that regard? Um, and that's something that I think most people don't really consider very much. And that doesn't necessarily you know, cause great revelations, but at least redirects the conversation to not whether or not the conspiracy theory is right or wrong. And I think that's always the, the, the trap that we get into is trying to tell people. People don't like to hear that their beliefs are wrong in any, I don't like to hear it myself. And, you know, when someone tells me your beliefs are wrong, I immediately get defensive and I double down. Um, but if you can kind of redirect, it's it's a, it's a little bit of like jujitsu. Um, it's it's kind of, it's taking that energy and kind of moving in a different direction. And that sometimes then, you know, provides uh, an opportunity for a different kind of discussion that's mm-hmm. out there.
0: No, and I think that's important, especially the, the, the empathy point, because I think sometimes and social media sometimes doesn't help the situation where it's it's kind of very combative um in the kind of back and forth and actually redirecting the conversation because you know discussing about the conspiracy theory you're, you're arguing against something that has no no basis in reality so realistically how can you possibly have a, a, a rational argument you're just going to frustrate yourself and the person you're you're supposedly trying to help um but like you say if you're kind of going to go behind the thing you know behind the thing that they believe but actually try to um hear their fear or hear their their, their um their their anxiety behind whatever it is that's that's leading them to, to down that path. Um that sounds more productive than than just headbutting and saying no you're wrong for this and this reason because then they're, they're not gonna listen to you as you say. It's just not yeah. gonna happen. Yeah. <clears throat> and most people are the same. You know you have to believe in the conspiracy theory. You talk to someone about politics and if they're quite staunch on their beliefs um you know just butting heads is not really going to change their mind
2: right and that and that's you know the the question is it's how you know there are there are people who you know come to realize that's you know whether they're in a cult or religion or they you know uh some sort of other dysfunctional belief system that is you know ultimately causing them more anguish than it's helping them mm-hmm. um you know, they'll have their own moments where they kind of realize truth. It's it's typically not because someone told them what their thinking was wrong, mm-hmm. um, but it's more likely that someone just actually listened to them and, and validated them and recognized them at that moment, who didn't, wasn't part of that kind of circular and enclosed narrative structure that they were kind of clinging on to.
0: Right. And thinking on a kind of more wider societal basis, I guess, um, what role... Does social media platforms play in kind of debunking and dealing with with misinformation and conspiracy theories
2: um so or this or is, should I, they play rather yeah I, I think whenever we have new media of any kind it allows for the dissemination of kind of transgressive beliefs um so in the united states for example you can go back and look in early american history there are a lot of conspiracy theories at the time of the american revolution and in the first decades of the American Republic, when there were two things, there was suddenly a massive widespread literacy and all of these pamphlets and penny presses. And so sort of, there was all this new media that was being formed um, that people were glommed onto, And these pamphleters, of course, were sensationalized. And they there are all these conspiracy theories kind of going forward. Um, the United States even had a political party for a while, a national political party called the Anti-Masonic Party that was basically... An, Uh, you know, a conspiracy theory about the Masons. Right. Um, So what we see now is once again, like a new media technology um, and sort of a, this sort of democratization of access to the public. Um, And of course, that means a lot of it's unmediated. So, you know, like the, you know, the crazy guy I met in Berkeley, you know, 25 years ago, I'm sure now he probably has a podcast and, you know, (laughs) millions of followers. Uh, so you know it's allowed voices like an Alex Jones for example to 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 gain audience and to disseminate ideas more broadly um than they were you know prior uh to you know prior to the 2000s um conspiracy theories tended to be like within these books and there were these mailing lists and it was a really cumbersome and you know a much more buried kind of subculture that you know, to gain access to these narratives and these ideas. So, on the one hand, what social media has done is allowed these alternative views to sort of spread much more widely. To have, like, you know, Q, um, you know, on, you know, four chan and an eight chan, you know, how you can have these discussion boards that people all over the world now have an ability to communicate with each other and uh, kind of create community around this, and that's pretty unprecedented. And so, the question is, is can you use this same media technology to um, combat the misinformation that most conspiracy theories uh, set forth. And uh, that's we're still trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and I, I think the challenge once again is, you know, people, it's you have to find a, an explanation that is as strongly emotionally compelling, or has has as much utility as the conspiracy theory does. And, um, and I think that's what we're still trying to figure out.
0: There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to misinformation and conspiracy theories because everybody's circumstances are different. So that alone is a massive challenge for anybody trying to deal with and accurately respond to the information being thrown at us left, right, and center. What are the kind of best lessons learned from from your expertise and also the kind of impact that this has had on society, would you say?
1: So, I suppose the best, best lessons is having more of an understanding of psychology. So, we've always knew that, you know, sense making, anxieties, uncertainties were a breeder of belief in conspiracies. And the COVID 19 pandemic has just really highlighted those are some of the same factors are involved. So, you know, when we think about interventions, is it really trying to focus on some of those skill sets? So, of course, we talked about critical thinking and trying to deal with emotions, but coupled with that, is it also trying to make sure people feel more, more impaired in society? So, you know, feeling disillusioned and cynical are all motivators to believe in conspiracies. So, is it about trying to ensure that we have a voice, whether it's in our, in our workplace or in our societies, that could help with that impairment issue? coupled with trying to think about school set building whereas you know when i was when i was in school the internet wasn't really a thing so you wasn't you didn't really talk about how you navigate the online world whereas people today it's a very different landscape mm-hmm. so it's supposed to appreciating that the world has slightly changed and whilst maybe these theories haven't become more popular they certainly haven't gone away so are they are they Tools that we can use to try and deal with some of the emotions, some of some of the some of the um, the needs and the skills that could try and reduce people's reliance on them in the future. Because again, as I say, they haven't gone away yet. But I suppose we haven't really focused on trying to fix them yet. It's all kind of been kind of been there throughout. There's never been a, a scholarly interest trying to think, okay, well, how do we try and tackle this particular issue? So I think a lesson is learning what we know so far about needs and trying to look to the future, think about how we develop tangible interventions that are going to work in the real world. So for example, we know that if someone stands up and thinks about a time they felt more in control, this can reduce belief in conspiracy theories. But of course, that isn't something that's realistic in the real world. Like you can't stand in front of your mirror every single morning and say, I felt powerful. That's not realistic. (laughs) So instead, it's trying to think about how do we get through in our society, and our, 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 our fabric, impairment in other ways. Mm-hmm. But I think those lab studies are really neat in highlighting that the effect works, it's just how you actually make it work in the real
0: world. So, how do we beat conspiracy theories and online misinformation? It begins with media literacy. Media literacy provides us with the skills to become more emotionally resilient and able to critically analyze information. As consumers of this online ecosystem, we like to call the internet, it has become all too easy to solidify bias and spread one-sided arguments. All the conspiracy theories we have explored in this season seem to have a kernel of truth, an element that is factual which believers in the conspiracy theory then use to justify the rest of the completely false narrative. Building better critical thinking skills will ensure that we, as a society, understand that just because one aspect is true does not mean that we should then blindly trust everything else under the same umbrella. Each individual case and story needs to be scrutinized. There is good news, however, in that there is no research to suggest that conspiracy theories are growing rapidly. However, for those more susceptible to conspiratorial thinking, the speed at which radicalization takes place has drastically increased. Online conspiracy theories have created these echo chambers of thought, where seeds of distrust are being sowed towards the government, the media, and loved ones. The original gatekeepers of information, including the government and traditional media outlets, have lost control. Information of any kind is now, for the most part, freely accessible to anyone. So it is our responsibility to become our own gatekeepers of information. Those who embrace conspiratorial beliefs more often than not, feel powerless, anxious, and fearful of the world around them. That underlying fear is often what enables a conspiracy theory to take root because these beliefs help them make sense of a world that leaves them feeling disempowered, alienated, and confused. In order to combat this, we as individuals must practice empathy and acknowledge their underlying fears without judgment or bias. There is no point trying to challenge their beliefs outright because these conspiracies are not built to be rational or logical. So challenging the conspiracy belief directly will often lead to the person doubling down. Instead, we need to try and support the person with empathy In the case of Jataf, the former QAnon follower from Season 2, Episode 12, empathy from the real world is what ultimately made his transition out of QAnon easier. In order for the wave of irrational conspiracies to be tackled in any meaningful way, people need to be empowered. Through education and political literacy, we can encourage people to think critically about the world around them and empower them to actively participate in our society. If feelings of powerlessness increase belief in conspiracy theories, might the reverse also be true? Might feelings of empowerment actually decrease beliefs in conspiracy theories? Just like feelings of powerlessness are associated with negative emotions, including fear, anxiety, and uncertainty, Feelings of empowerment are likely to decrease such negative emotions. If individuals feel that they are in control of their own life, they can begin to foster trust towards the world around them, rather than constantly view their environment in a suspicious and negative manner. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina Mackenzie Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the U.S. Embassy in London. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.